0: Hey today we are in uh Romans 13, right, there towards the end of Romans 13, the last few verses. And uh last week we were looking at verses uh 8 through 10. And uh, today, I'd like to pick it up with verse eleven to the end of the chapter. Uh, let's just begin reading in verse eight and read down through verse fourteen and and uh, then do a little bit of review and proceed. He says, in verse eight, oh nothing to anyone." Except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall love, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Okay, uh, so last week, verses 8 through 10, what do you recall that we talked about last week? <coughs> Doing those things that fulfill the law, but it do not break some ways. Yes. Okay, okay. That Paul is not confused here when he's talking about fulfilling the law. He's not contradicting what he said earlier about being freed from the law. Being freed from the law has to do with being freed from the curse of the law, being freed from the obligation to keep the law in order to be saved. That's what we've been freed from but we've certainly not been free from our obligation and our responsibility to be obedient to God and to walk in righteousness. And the key here in these verses is we discover that the way we do that, rather than being preoccupied necessarily with a whole list of, of things that we have to constantly keep in mind, if we just apply the principle of loving our neighbor as ourself, uh, then we will go a long way in fulfilling uh, the requirements of the law, what else the fact that all authority comes from god. okay, okay uh, we had talked about that in the weeks before that all authority comes from god it's and it's uh, it's instituted by god and and uh, so we have a uh, an obligation and a responsibility to regard that and think highly regarding authority, what else okay, okay, we talked about finance is he is he prohibiting there completely the borrowing of money at all uh, 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 you know of uh, taking out a mortgage on a house or something like that and and uh And the general consensus of the commentators and and I tend to agree with them, is that he's not prohibiting the uh, at all the idea of borrowing money, uh, but that the idea is you never want to be in a position where you are not, not fulfilling your obligations and your responsibilities to people, okay uh, And we went into that in some depth, so that's a very brief summary of what we talked about on that How we talked about. Yes. Yeah. The scriptures give guidelines in several places about lending money. And uh, so the implication is there is that if you're if you're lending, if you're if it's OK to lend money under very careful circumstances, then uh, obviously uh, you wouldn't be wanting to bet somebody in doing evil. So, that would seem to imply that the Lord does not prohibit the idea of borrowing money, although he does give us in Scripture a number of cautions regarding that. So, okay, What else? Remember, we talked some about that. Actually, Paul here is quoting from Jesus and from the Old Testament when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about that a little bit. What did we say about that? Oh, okay, okay. Nobody ever hates themselves, okay? It's, so, uh, some people have really turned this passage on its head and said, well, you need to learn to love yourself before you can love others. That, of course, is not at all what the passage is saying. And the Scriptures operate on the assumption that we all love ourselves. And we talked some about the subject of the issue of low self-esteem and, and uh, what are some of the things we said about low self-esteem. Okay. Okay. Low self-esteem really is somebody who's preoccupied with themselves, and so, uh, so in in a real sense, low self-esteem is just a form, another form of pride. It's another form of uh, preoccupation. But we talk about two kinds of low self-esteem. Remember that. What were the two kinds of low self-esteem? We're going to go back and do last week's lesson again here. <laughs> Remember we talked about warranted low self-esteem and unwarranted low self-esteem, right? What would be warranted low self-esteem? That when you know you're not real good at something. Well, that's part of it, just re- recognizing that we're finite, recognizing that we're limited. We're all limited in most areas. I mean, most... I'm paying a house, but it won't look like you're paying yeah, yeah, right, and uh, and I could teach a bunch of junior high school kids, and, and uh, it would be a mess, too. So, exactly, we're all very limited in many ways, we, but we all are also gifted by God in a few ways, right? So, uh, so uh, there is warranted low self-esteem when I recognize that I'd make a lousy junior high school teacher. Okay, uh, but uh, uh, but also we there's warranted low self-esteem in recognizing that we're sinners, that we've violated God's uh, law, that we are that we were enemies of God, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we talked about that passage, that, that verse in the hymn talks about what a worm am I, and some people object, of course, to that terminology, but I kind of like it. Came across it again, incidentally, sometime this week in some reading I was doing. Uh, some theologian or something was using the term, I forget now, but it's just that sense that before God that I stood condemned, et cetera. Now, Jim raised the point, of course, that we are no, as Christians, we're no longer in that position. Uh, and I promised that I'd get to that and address that some last week and I didn't. And he came up after class and he says, you didn't address that. And I'm like, yeah, I know I didn't. I lied. But uh, so we never got to that. But in reality, of course, now that we're Christians, we we stand in a, in a new relationship with God and we're not in that situation of being condemned, etc., But for somebody to have low self-esteem when they're recognizing that they are a sinner and that they stood, uh, at least before their believers, stood as condemned before God, that's warranted low self-esteem. We ought to think lowly of ourselves in some of these areas, okay? Pardon? Or being humble. Or being humble, yes. Just just fide humility. But then there's unwarranted low self-esteem. And unwarranted low self-esteem is is that's... Is that attitude towards myself that thinks that I'm worthless, that I'm insignificant. And the fact is, I am not worthless. Christ shed his blood for me. So apparently God thinks I was worse and I didn't think I was righteous. He, He didn't save me because I was good, but he did save me because I was made in his likeness. I am significant. And if I if I've listened to people tell me if I've had a parent or somebody who's told me my whole life that I'm worthless or I'm insignificant or I'm useless. okay, that's unwarranted low self-esteem. That's not true that I am valuable to God. I am. uh, He he gave his son for me. He loves me. I am made in his image. And so in that respect, uh, I am not insignificant and I am not worthless. Okay. so those are some of the things we talked about last week. Well, Paul goes on then here in these verses that we're looking at today. And let me just read them again. He says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us Behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. There is a sense in which when I look at these verses, they seem to me kind of to be a a, uh, like a bookend to chapters 12 and 13. We started in chapter 12, uh, where Paul uh, instructs us there at the beginning of chapter 12. And he says, to, uh, he, he urges us to present our bodies to God a living sacrifice. And then in verse 2, he says, And do not be conformed to this world. And we talked about how the world is this present evil age that we live in and that we're not to be conformed to it or pressed into its mold. But he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and And then, as we proceed down through Chapter Twelve and Chapter Thirteen, Paul just goes through a whole list of of areas in 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 which we are to behave as ones whose minds have been transformed and who are not conformed to the world and so he talks about all kinds of things of uh, everything from loving our neighbor to submitting to authority and he just he just goes through a whole list of things through chapters 12 and 13 and then we get to the end of 13 and he and he talks about this night and day thing and he talks about not sleeping and being awake etc and in some sense it's really the same idea that he was talking about in 121 and 2 because in 12 One, he tells us not to be conformed to this world. And then in 13, uh, there at the end, in the verses we're looking at today, he's talking about not being asleep, realizing it's not the nighttime. The point is this age, this present age, when he's talking about the nighttime there, he's, he's referring to this again, this idea of the world, the present age that we live in, this present evil age. And he doesn't want us living and thinking in terms of this present evil age. And so, in one sense, it's the same idea of not being conformed to the world that he talked about in chapter twelve, verse two. And then he and then he tells us to lay aside the evil deeds of darkness. And ultimately, as he gets down there to verse fourteen, he says to put on Christ. And putting on Christ is very similar to that idea uh, that he that he talked about there in twelve two about having our minds renewed. So, in one sense, I kind of look at these verses at the end of thirteen as kind of the of uh, the bookends matching twelve one and two, and then eleven or excuse me thirteen eleven through fourteen they 're kind of the bookends to this whole two chapter section on Christian ethics and the Christian life and how we 're to live as christians so it's kind of it kind of sets them apart and then in chapter fourteen he's going to go on uh, again, of course, dealing with Christian ethics, but he's going to start dealing with the issue of how we think about other Christians in the church in particular particularly uh, he's going to talk about. Uh, the issue of uh, those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith and how we look at one another and that sort of thing. And so he's going to start dealing with some issues of Christian unity in chapter 14. So it's, a, it's still in the area of Christian ethics and Christian behavior, but it really is kind of a change of theme. So, so I look at, at these verses that we're looking at today as kind of tying up chapters 12 and 13. Now, what's interesting is I read these verses. I wouldn't normally think of these verses as evangelistic verses. <laughs> they're not the kind of they're not the kind of verses that you would typically go to if you were wanting to share the gospel with people. You know, they have, people have different ways of sharing the gospel. And witnessing to people and sometimes they have different illustrations they use or different verses they like to go you and probably, probably you're familiar with what's called the roman road where you take people through a number of key verses in the book of romans if you're wanting to share the gospel with them or there's the the so-called bridge illustration that i learned many many years ago uh, on the island okinawa as i was learning to share the gospel and uh, and so there are various ways of sharing the gospel and various passages we use. But this is not a passage that would normally pop in my mind. But this is actually a passage that played a role in one of the greatest conversions in the history of the church. Back in the summer of 386 A.D., there was a young man by uh, about the age of 30 years of age or so. Very educated uh, individual, and he was um, uh, he was just very licentious. Very, he was just he was just sold into slavery to sexual sin, etc. He just and he was just living it up. He was kind of the epitome of what Paul talks about here: carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality. This guy was kind of the epitome of it, and. Uh, he he was living at the time in Milan, Italy. He had a mother who was a very devout believer and she was praying for her for him, just uh, intensely praying for him and for his salvation. Her heart, of course, was broken by the way he was living his life. And uh and uh this guy's name was Augustine. And uh and his uh his mother at one point encouraged him to go and listen to a preacher by the name of Ambrose Saint Ambrose and Ambrose was a preacher in Milan, and he was renowned for his eloquence and for his oratory. Uh, he was uh, very very popular for these reasons because he was so so good at what he did and so Augustine, being a very educated man was was uh, was very interested in uh, in hearing Ambrose, not because he wanted to hear what Ambrose had to say, but he wanted to hear how he said it. And so he started going and listening to Ambrose because he wanted to watch him uh, as he preached and, and, and understand how he communicated and those sorts of things. But of course, as that happened, he fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God began to deal with him and convict him of his sin. And, uh, and yet he was so enslaved to it, he couldn't break free from it. And he, so he was going through this tremendous turmoil and, uh, and later, of course, he became uh, the person we know of as St. Augustine uh, of, of Hippo. He was uh, probably the greatest theologian in church history since the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's probably more influential in the theo- development of the theology of the Christian church than any other man, certainly uh, certainly for at least a thousand or two thousand years. This guy uh, changed, uh, literally changed the face of the Christian world. But how he got there is such an amazing story, and he wrote he wrote his uh, he wrote his book called the, his Confessions, in which he recounts to God his experience of how God led him to salvation. And when he comes to the crisis point, I just want to read this to you because it's edifying to me. He says uh, he says then as this vehement quarrel which I waged with my soul in the chamber of my heart, was raging inside my inner dwelling, agitated both in mind and countenance, I seized upon Olypius and exclaimed, What is the matter with us? What is this? What did you hear? The uninstructed start up and take heaven, and we, with all our learning but so little heart, see where we wallow in flesh and blood, because others have gone before us, are we ashamed to follow and not rather ashamed at our not following? I scarcely knew what I said, and in my excitement, I flung away from him while he gazed at me in silent astonishment. I fled into the garden with Olypius following step by step, for I had no secret in which he did not share. And, and how could he leave me in such distress? We sat down as far from the house as possible. I was greatly disturbed in spirit, angry at myself with a turbulent indignation because I had not entered thy will and thy covenant. He's again speaking to God. Thus I was sick and tormented, reproaching myself more bitterly than ever, rolling with and riding in my chain till it should be utterly broken. By now I was held but slightly, but still was held. O Thou, O Lord, didst press upon me in my utmost heart with severe mercy, redoubling the lashes of fear and shame, lest I should again give way and that same slender remaining tie not be broken off, but recover strength and enchain me yet more securely. Now, when deep reflection had drawn, uh, drawn up out of my, the secret depths of my soul, all my misery, and I had heaped it up before the sight of my heart, there, was a, there arose a mighty storm accompanied by a mighty rain of tears. That I might give way fully to my tears and lamentations, I stole away from Olympias. For it seemed to me that solitude was more appropriate for the business of weeping. I went far enough away that I could feel that even his presence was no restraint upon me. This was the way I felt at the time, and he realized it. I suppose I had said something before I started up, and he noticed that the sound of my voice was choked with weeping. And so he stayed alone where we had been sitting together, greatly astonished. I flung myself down under a fig tree, and I I know not, and gave free course to my tears. The streams of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to Thee. And not indeed in these words, but to this effect I cried to Thee. O oh, Thou, Lord! O oh Lord! How long? How long, O oh Lord? wilt Thou be angry forever? O oh, remember, uh, remember not against us our former iniquities." For I felt that I was still enthralled by them. I sent up these sorrowful cries. How long? How long? Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Why not now? Why not this very hour make an end to my uncleanness? I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, Pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Immediately I ceased weeping and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song. But I could not remember ever having heard the like. So damning the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet. For I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage that I should light upon. For I had heard how Anthony, accidentally coming into church while the gospel was being read, received the admonition as if what was read had been addressed to him. Go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. By such an oracle he was forthwith converted to thee. So I quickly returned to the bench where Olypius was sitting. And for there I had put down the apostles book when I had left there. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first felt. Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I wanted to read no further. Nor did I need to for instantly as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Closing the book then and putting my finger or something else for a mark, I began now with tranquil countenance to tell it all to Olypius. And he in turn disclosed to me what had been going on in himself of which I knew nothing. He asked to see what I had read. I showed him and he looked on even further than I had read. I had not known what followed, but indeed it was this him that is weak in faith receive this. He applied to himself and told me so by these words of warning. He was strengthened and by exercising his good resolution and purpose all very much in keeping with his character in which in these respects he was far different and better than I he joined me in full commitment without any restless hesitation. Isn't that a marvelous story? guy just opens the Bible and turns to Romans chapter 13, (laughs) verses 13 and 14, and he is freed from his slavery to sin and he puts on Christ and he changes the world. (laughs) Just a marvelous story. I wanted to read that to you. Uh, because it helps encourage me with these verses, I as I was reading these verses and studying these verses this week, I just I find myself just so moved. They are exciting verses to me, <laughs> and you just normally wouldn't think of them that way. Uh, I don't know if I ever have. I I don't know if I ever have. But he says he says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. He starts out, he says, Do this and and we're not exactly sure what he's referring to when he says do this. He could be referring to everything he said so far in chapters twelve and thirteen. As I said, it's kinda of like a bookend to that end of the chapter of those chapters. And so maybe when he's saying do this, he's Referring to all these instructions he's given through 12 and 13. Or possibly he's just referring back to the verses just immediately prior where he was talking about our perpetual obligation to be loving one another as we love ourselves. And then there's a possibility that rather than looking back either at all of chapter 12 and 13 or of the verses immediately prior to what he's saying, he's looking forward to what he's about to say. Do this wake up, put on the right clothes, Okay. walk in the day. I, I, I don't know which uh, Paul has in mind uh, for sure when he says do this. I, I tend to be a little inclined to think of it either as a reference to all that he said in 12 and 13 or that he's looking forward uh, to the things that he's about to say. This is what you want to do. Knowing the hour, knowing the time, that now salvation is near to us and we believe, etc., etc. So, so, I'm not sure which it is, but as you read it and think about it, uh, let the Holy Spirit direct you as to how you should apply it. But he says, he says this, knowing this, knowing the time, or do this, knowing the time. And, and what strikes me about this is that Paul's writing this to the Roman believers. He just assumes they know what time it is. He just assumes they do, okay? These are Christians. And if they're Christians, they instinctively know what time it is. You know, I, now, now, of course, he's writing them and he's reminding them and he's telling them how they ought to behave in view of this information. So, it's not that we as believers don't at times need to be reminded what time it is. But we do instinctively know what time it is, don't we? Because we wouldn't be believers otherwise. We would never have come to Christ if we didn't know what time it was. And he says, he says, you know, you know what time it is. He's gonna he's gonna describe, and he uses his metaphors. He uses the metaphor of night and day, and he uses the metaphor of sleeping and awake. OK, and these, are, of course, common metaphors in Scripture. The metaphor of night and day is oftentimes used in Scripture to the night referring to, as we said, this present evil age. This is the evil age that we live in. Even if we're believers, we're living in this world and we're living in this evil age. And this is the this is the nighttime. OK, and the night is usually associated with with that time in which a lot of evil stuff Goes Do you ever notice that in movies, when you watch movies, that oftentimes the really bad stuff is pictured as going on at night, isn't it? And the reason is, is because somehow we, in some perverted way, think that when it's night, when it's dark, our sin is not obvious. That it's not seen and it's not known. And so in one place the Scripture says, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We, we like to think that our sin is hidden and concealed. And when we think that we're not being watched, when we think that God's not watching or people are not watching, then we feel a little bit easier indulging the flesh, don't we? We feel a little bit easier sinning when we think that nobody's looking or when we think, that God's not watching it. So we have this metaphor of the night and then we have the metaphor of the day. And in Scripture, the metaphor of the day is the metaphor uh, typically of the new age. Remember back in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we talked about the old age, the world, that which was passing away and the new age that's coming and we're to live as if we are in the new age. We've talked about that in these passages. okay? And so the day is the... The day in this metaphor is the new age it 's the dawning age it 's the kingdom of god and we 'll talk more about the Kingdom of God in just a minute and how the scripture talks about the kingdom of God. but we have the kingdom of God coming in and and in reality as we 'll see in a minute those these two ages overlap one another okay and hence some confusion in our minds but so we have this metaphor of the night and the day, and then we have the metaphor of the sleeping and the being awake okay and and there again, the idea of sleeping is the idea of lethargy it's the idea of indifference to sin okay so so the tendency is for us to be asleep to be indifferent to sin to be careless about sin in our lives when we are living in the dark age when we're living in the present evil age it's easy for us to be asleep to not be paying attention uh, we remember the the gospel stories where Jesus in, in the gospels is teaching and he, and he warns against against being asleep and not being ready for the coming of the king, etc., etc., etc. So sleep represents that state of spiritual indifference and lethargy and sinfulness. Okay. And, and then we have awakeness, which is which is the condition of the of the believer. It's the condition of the person who is walking before God, walking in communion and walking in fellowship with God and walking in the light, as first John says. OK, so these are the metaphors that, that Paul is employing here as he as he shares these things with us. And he tells us, he says, now we know what time it is. Because we know, he says, that now, there in verse 11, now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I, I remember very vividly when I was, uh, I mentioned Okinawa earlier, when I was on Okinawa, of course this is many years ago now, I was on Okinawa, I was I was in my late teens or early 20s, of course, I was in the service. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I was in fellowship with some believers there on the island. And, and I remember, uh, I'm, re- I'm usually not a guy who's really big on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day stuff. You know, it's just to me, it's another day, it tends to be. But I remember particularly these a couple years that I was there on Okinawa. The first New Year's Eve came around and God just impressed on me. I, as I was reading and praying that evening, it just impressed on me. This next year could be the year. Christ could come back this next year, and I just remember being so excited. You know, I didn't assume he did or what, uh, that he was or anything. I didn't set a date or anything. I was just impressed by this next year it could happen. Well, it didn't, of course, as we all know. And and so the next Christ, the next New Year's Eve, I, it was the same thing. It's I just impressed. You know, it could be this next year. Live. You know, live this year like this year Christ could come. Well, that was forty-five years ago, folks, or more—more more than forty-five years ago—and he hadn't come. Now, there's two ways we can look at that, right? I can go, and this is this is this is kind of what we default to. Okay, I can go, well, he hadn't come and he hadn't come and he hadn't come and he hadn't come, so he's probably not coming this year. Maybe he's not coming at all. That's what Peter addresses, remember, in his epistle when he says, they say, well, look how long it's been since he's come. And he reminds us that with God, a thousand years is a day and one day is a thousand years, right? For so one thing, one, one thing we can do with this apparent delay in Christ's coming is we can go, well, I guess I can go slack. Because if it hadn't happened by now, it's probably not going to happen this year. I mean, I've lived through 40 plus years of years when Christ didn't come back. So, you know, what are the chances he's going to come back this year? But what's fascinating to me is what Paul does with the delay. I call it a delay. It's, of course, not really a delay, but it appears to us as a delay. And what fascinates me is what does Paul do with the delay? As this delay goes on and on and on and on and on, what does Paul do with it in verse 11? It's It's getting closer. You know what, folks? Christ's return is 45 years nearer than it was Those evenings on Okinawa when I sat there and thought it could be this year. It's nearer to you than the day you believed. Some of you, when you were first saved or in your early years with Christ, you remember thinking about and anticipating the coming of Christ and what a glorious thing that would be. But as the years go on and the mundaneness of life sets in, we start getting careless, don't we? And we start getting indifferent to the Lord's return. And Paul's going, no, that's not the way to think. The way to think is to realize it's nearer now. We're closer to it. You don't do this with anything else. You know, if you've got a great vacation plan for next summer, the nearer it gets you, you don't get more indifferent to it. You get more excited about it. You get busy with it. You know, I have a daughter-in-law who's who's pregnant, and here in a few weeks she's going to have a baby. As that baby gets closer, you know, they're buying a house, you know. She's getting pretty urgent about getting that house in shape, you know. Her husband's working day and night trying to get that house painted up and ready for him, right? Because it's getting, no nearer. So why do we do this with the return of Christ when we don't do this with anything else in our lives? The closer something gets, the more excited we get about it. And the closer we get, the longer we go without Christ coming back, the closer we are. We are near now than the day we believe. Was Paul mistaken? Because he says in the next verse, he says the, he says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. That was 2,000 years ago, folks. And so some people read this passage and they think, well, you know, you, you got to you know you got to just give you got to give the, the apostles a little bit of rope here because because you know they really didn't understand they didn't know how long it was going to be so they thought it was going but they were just simply mistaken let me tell you what the apostles knew one they knew Christ was coming back two they knew that nobody knew the day or the hour three they knew that the world had to be evangelized before Christ returned now we have a lot of reasons to do evangelism, but I can't think of one better than that. <laughs> the sooner we get this job done. So they knew the world had to be evangelized. Secondly, we know our, our, our another point is in Romans chapter eleven, as we saw when we were studying Romans eleven. We knew that there was going to the apostles knew there was going to be a restoration of Israel. And fourthly, or fifthly, or wherever I am in my little list here. They knew there would be a great apostasy. These are all things the apostles knew. So when they talked about the imminent return of Christ, they were not unaware that there were some big things that had to happen. But they they weren't so presumptuous as to assume that they knew when these things were going to happen. But what they did know is that even aware that the world needed to be evangelized, that Israel needed to be restored, and that a great apostasy was going to happen, even with that, they knew that when Jesus walked the earth, He said, you better be alert, because it's going to happen at a time when you do not think it will. And so Jesus emphasized, The disciples are not mistaken in emphasizing this idea that the night is passing and the day is near. Because that's what Jesus taught. There's no mistake there. Now, of course, it creates a tension in our mind. We don't understand all this, but, but there are some clues. There are some things that help us to get a little bit of a better grasp on this idea. Paul says that he says the nighttime is passing and the day is almost near. And that's really a, you know, for those of us who manage to get up early enough in the day, that's kind of a cool time of the day, you know. Uh, as you get older, you find it's easier to get up that time of day because you can't sleep as long as you used to. I don't know why teenagers can sleep till noon, but I sure can't do it. I don't think I could ever sleep till noon. But I remember when I was younger, I used to, I don't get to do this hardly ever anymore, but I used to do a lot of camping. I love to camp, okay. But one thing I didn't like about camping was sleeping on the hard ground, okay, because I could never sleep well on the hard ground, okay. So what that meant was I was invariably up well before sunup because I couldn't sleep, right, okay. But that's not a downer, you know, you get up, it's cold and you get out and, you, you know, you get the fire going again and that sort of thing, you know. And then you sit there and what are you waiting for? The coffee. <laughs> well, I wasn't a coffee drinker, so that was out for me. But I'm waiting for those first rays of light. You know, that first glimmer on the horizon. I remember when I came back from Okinawa, and I was uh, uh, I, uh, I borrowed my mother's car. Through the Colorado Springs where my parents lived, I borrowed my mother's car. I had a friend with me who was coming back from Okinawa. He was still in the service, and he had been assigned. Uh, he had been assigned to. Uh, to an Air Force installation up near Rapid City, South Dakota. So uh, so we got my mother's car and I drove him up and left him in Rapid City. And I wanted to go out to Indiana. Uh, I was going to be going to school in the fall in Indiana. This was in the spring. I was going to be going to school in the fall at Indiana University. And so I wanted to go out and see the campus and that sort of thing. I'd never seen it before. And, uh, and so I'm driving across South Dakota and Illinois. So I don't remember where I was. But, you know, I was one of those idiots, you know, uh, when like, Young people are when you think you, you just got to get there, you know, and so you drive through the day, through the night, you never stop and sleep, that type of thing, you know. Uh, maybe none of you were crazy like that, but I was, you know. And so you're you're doing this thing, you know, as you're driving down the road, trying to stay awake. Please, please, don't ever do that, you know. But but I used to do that when I was younger. And so I'm driving across somewhere in the Midwest, I don't know, South Dakota, Illinois, somewhere, and I'm driving through the night, and I'm trying to get to Indiana. And I am just doing this, and I'm just falling, you know I'm just, not, you know, I'm just trying so, and it's just so, why do you do that? You know, why don't you just stop and park and sleep for an hour? I, I don't know. But anyway, so I'm doing this, and, and it's getting later and later and later, you know, it's getting 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm just getting so tired. And then that light begins to come up on the horizon. I'll never forget this. That light comes, and the, the sky starts to fill with light. And I just woke up. I was just as alert as I could be. Because the sky was now full of light. I think about that when I think of the verse in Proverbs where he says the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which grows brighter and brighter until the full day. Paul says the night is almost gone. This evil age... It's coming to an end, and in its place, he says, "The day is almost near." But the reality is, they overlap, don't they? Even if they do in real life, you know, you're you're sitting there in your camping spot, you know, and it's dark all around you, but over there, you see a little bit of light, and then it just kind of starts moving your way, you know, and and it's pushing the night out, and it's, okay, and and so. In reality, that's the way it is with, with the kingdom of God. Remember when Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, He said things that seemed confusing to us. Because He would say things like, you know, you've got to be ready. You got, you don't fall asleep because the kingdom of God's coming and you've got to be ready when it comes. And that type of thing. And then He would say things like, the kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so we discover that the biblical teaching of the kingdom of God is there's a kingdom of God that is future and there's a kingdom of God that is present. Now, the kingdom of God is the rule of Christ. And so the kingdom of God is present with us already to the degree that, the king, that Christ is ruling in our hearts. And there's a whole group of people all over the world in whom Christ is already ruling. We call it the church. It's those people in whom Christ is already ruling and to that degree the kingdom of God, the day is already here. So here we are, we're the church and we're living in this dark, dark, dark world, aren't we? It's a very dark world. But we are the day. We are those first rays of sunlight that shine into the world. Man, is that not an admonition to us to live out the Christian life when we realize we're the only light they got? And we are the promise. We're the down payment of the day that is coming. The night, he says, is passing away. And the day is near. And it's already shining. It's already beginning to show those first rays of light. And those first rays of light are being manifest in the lives of men and women in whom Christ rules. And so he says, put off the deeds of darkness and put on The armor of light, he says there in verse 12. You see, there's there's clothing, there's attire, etc. that's appropriate for the night and for sleeping. And then there's clothing that's appropriate for the day and for walking around in the light. And I am really thankful this morning that all of you who are here before you came to church today, put off the clothing of the night. You know, sometimes you go to Walmart, you see some people that don't have that discernment. (laughs) And they show up in Walmart in their pajamas, you know. Okay. Uh, It's just not proper. That's the clothing of the night. That's the clothing of sleeping. But there's a clothing of the day. That's what we should be put on. You all, you all who are mothers and you raise small children. You remember what it was like when, you know, just try to get a head start on the next day. You know, after you put the kids in bed or whatever, you'd go and you'd get their clothes out for the next day, right? You'd lay their clothes out, maybe on the bed or somewhere in their room, and you'd lay their clothes out so that when they got up in the morning, they'd take off their pajamas or whatever, and they'd put on the clothing of the day. Christ has laid our clothes out for us, folks. He wants us to lay aside the clothing of the night. And He wants us to take on the clothing of the day. In this case, He calls it the armor of light, right? So what does that make us think about? Well, it makes us think about the things Ronnie's been preaching on the last number of weeks, right? Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of the Christian, the armor of the light. So he wants us to put on the armor of the day, or the armor of light, and 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 I think he may be referring there to what he what he talks about in much more detail in Ephesians chapter six. But then later in verse thirteen, he just fourteen, he just says simply, just put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you could sum up Ephesians sixteen, uh, Ephesians six, with just. Put on Christ. As I was wrapping up my studies yesterday afternoon in this passage, I just found myself crying out to God, saying, God, help me put on Christ. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. That's the clothing that we who live in the light, we who are of the age to come, we are of the new age, this is the clothing we are to wear, not the clothing of the night. And then he says in verse 13, he says, he, he says, behave properly. Okay? Folks, it's just not proper to walk around in the clothing of night and the clothing of sleep. It's just not proper. Well, what is the clothing of the night? What are the deeds of darkness? Well, he tells us some. It's not an exhaustive list by any means in verse 13, but he just gives us a clue. He says not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. A very brief list, of course. We'd get a more comprehensive list if we went to Galatians chapter 5 where he talks about the deeds of the flesh and it's much more comprehensive list there where he talks to us about what how the flesh lives when it is indifferent to the light, how the flesh lives when it thinks it's in the darkness. How we live when when we become lazy and spiritually lazy and spiritually indifferent. And he so he talks here in this passage. He talks about just wild partying and drunkenness and and sexual looseness and sensuality. Just being controlled by our flesh. Just kind of letting it go and letting our flesh control us. Yeah, I was thinking about your announcement about the the program on dealing with pornography. That's just one area, but that's a big area nowadays, isn't it? But our world is just so full, because it's easy to blame the world, but there's also our own flesh. But the world is just so full of, of providing us with so many opportunities for these kind of things. But I was thinking as I was looking at this list of carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality and strife and, and jealousy. And I was thinking how these things are, those first four are kind of things that in the church, you know, we're pretty down on those things. But how oftentimes are we tolerant of strife and jealousy? yeah you know, we don't you know we don't let it show big time, usually, but sometimes we do even in the church let it show. but we just allow there to be harbored in our hearts attitudes of strife towards other people. That's what he's gonna do with chapter fourteen about strife between Christians and and so we we, we tolerate that. We, we let it slide because we think it's hidden. But it's not hidden to God. And it's a manifestation of the night. It's the clothing of the night. Are you walking around with strife in your heart? Are you walking around with jealousy in your heart? It, folks, it's like going to Walmart in your PJs. Only worse. Because you, you are the light of the world. You are the only way the world can see the coming kingdom at this point. You're the overlap. And unless the world sees you, it does not see the kingdom of God. And so if we tolerate these things in our lives, how is the world to know what the kingdom of God will be like? How is it to want? What the kingdom of the world, what the kingdom of God will be like. So he says, we're going to lay aside these things. He says, and we are going to, he says, we're going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that he uses that term because, because in another place in Galatians he tells us we've already done this. We put on Christ when we were saved. We put on Christ. Okay. So there's one sense in which we have already put on Christ. But there's another sense in which in our daily lives we need to be putting Christ on. When we get up in the morning, the clothing that He has so kindly, affectionately laid out for us to put on is His own Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so, by the grace of God, may you and I lay aside the attitudes, the actions, the indifference, the lethargy of the night. And may we put on Christ. And He says, Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Sometimes I wonder, why am I so prone to the lust of the flesh? And then I realize how often I make provision for it. I just make allowances for it. I I make sure I've got room for it. And he says don't don't make provision for the flesh. you know don't make room for those attitudes of jealousy, those attitudes of strife, those attitudes of pride, those lustful thoughts, lustful images just don't just don't make any room for it." Well, how am I going to crowd it out? How am I going to make sure there's no room left for that? Well, if I'm wearing Christ, if I'm wearing Christ, there'll be no room for the flesh. I don't know about you, but I was terribly convicted by these verses. Terribly convicted. And I'm saying to God, God, I love Christ. I want to put on Christ. May He help us to do that. Okay, next week we'll go on in chapter 14.